The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Roger McNamee, an early Facebook investor, has been sounding the alarm. In his new book, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, he persuasively lays out an argument about why Facebook and other tech giants shouldn't be trusted and how regulators need to step in. Roger, welcome to the program. Thank you for coming on The Exchange. What a pleasure to be here. Okay, so listen, I think it's safe to say that you were once a huge admirer of Facebook, but that the scales have now fallen off your eyes and you see something completely different. And and to me, what stands out about this is that you're a creature of Silicon Valley. You're an insider, and it's really rare to me when one member tries to pierce the kind of happy-go-lucky bubble that is so persistent uh, on Sand Hill Road. And you're that guy. Um, you're an insider trying to, to basically say, listen, there's, there's stuff that we need to pay attention to here. Um, and in some ways, you also gave Mark Zuckerberg the best two pieces of advice uh, that I think that helped Facebook flourish. One is that you told him not to sell to Yahoo. And two, you told him to go out and, and hire Sheryl Sandberg. So kind of taking all of that, what, you know, what what time and what moment did you wake up and realize that Facebook was spinning out of control? Jennifer, the thing that is so difficult about my experience is that it was the product of pure chance. I advised Mark from 2006 to 2009. I've known Cheryl since she was in the Treasury Department in 2000 when she introduced my future partner, Bono, to me, okay. and w- what eventually led to creating uh, Elevation Partners. When I met Mark, he was 22, I was 50, and I helped him keep the company independent. I think he wanted to keep it independent. The problem was everybody who knew he knew wanted him to sell it. And yeah. so I was able to help him understand the best way to convince everybody to go forward to do the thing he actually wanted to do. And I I stopped being an insider there in 2009, but I was still a cheerleader. I couldn't possibly imagine something going wrong. I was on vacation in the very beginning of 2016, and I was on Facebook because, like so many people, I'm addicted to a lot of these services. And I was seeing things on there that were totally inappropriate. And over the course of 2016, I saw in four or five different domains, situations where bad actors used the business model of Facebook, which is advertising, and the architecture of Facebook to harm innocent people. And they were doing this in politics. They were doing this in uh, civil rights. They were doing this in housing. They were doing this all over the place. And at the beginning, I just was like Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window, I saw something that didn't look right. I didn't understand it, and I kind of naively pulled on a string. Yeah, and did you? And did you? I mean, when you pulled on that string, were you thinking that okay? Because basically, you went to to Mark and and Cheryl and said, you know, I, I've found some some bad things here. Did you expect them to embrace what you were going to say? Like, what was your expectations once that's, you delivered the news? That's such a great question. No, my expectation was not that they were going to embrace it. Uh, I know them both too well for that. The truth is that Mark has this vision, which he's had from the beginning, that connecting the whole world on one network was so obviously a good thing that 
naysayers could safely be ignored. Hmm. And I did not expect him to embrace my ideas, which is why I framed them the way I did. It was just before the 2016 election. So I did not focus on the Russians or the possibility of election interference because I assumed Clinton was going to win and I didn't want them to dismiss my concerns. My goal was very simple. I wanted them to investigate, to make sure that their assertion, which is that what I saw was isolated and they'd taken care of it, was actually true. My view of this thing was that they had been victims and that the best thing to do was to spend whatever it took to restore trust and that they would come out of the whole experience better than they went in. Did you feel like you were a lone wolf out there? I knew I was a lone wolf. Now, it turned out that I wasn't, but it, it completely felt like a lone wolf. I started looking for allies. And the first one I found was a a young man named Tristan Harris, who had been a design ethicist at Google and had been on 60 Minutes, the CBS TV show, talking about a topic he called brain hacking, which is essentially using tricks borrowed from slot machines and from propaganda, but putting them on computers with real-time feedback loops to manipulate attention in a way that creates first habits, and then addiction. And he wasn't looking at the election at all. He was just talking about how products like Facebook and Instagram and Google and YouTube are architected and how they can create addiction. Yeah, you lay that out very nicely in your book, I think. And, and that also kind of, and I don't want to say, I don't want to be naive about it because you do think that, you know, people behind technology are trying to get people to use it. But it was it was it was an eye opener because it's not all happy go lucky pictures of puppies you know well you you think you think it's about pictures of puppies or or babies or or organizing group events right you know the things that that social media is demonstrably good at yeah the problem is that while you're doing that the other side of that conversation is a massive artificial intelligence that has essentially perfect information on you I mean, you just wouldn't believe how much data these people have accumulated because not only do they have everything you do on their platform, they have all of your location data that they buy from your cellular phone carrier. They have all of your credit card data that they buy from the people who have the credit card data and every other data source that's available. So even if you're not on the platforms, they know pretty much everything there is to know about you. And they use that not to serve your needs, but to serve theirs. And that is the thing that I knew nothing about when I started this process. I'm assuming people in Silicon Valley were like, you're crazy. Go away. I saw the tweets. At the beginning, at the beginning, I I reached out to Tristan and I said, hey, do you need a wingman? Because I'm looking at this from the perspective of the election. He's looking at it from the perspective of public health. And what I realized was that his idea was actually the source of the problem that you couldn't have election interference without the ability to manipulate attention, create behaviors that are effectively addictive. And so we decided we were going to join forces and dedicate ourselves full-time to activism. And the first thing we did, we went to the TED conference in Vancouver, which is the, you know, ground zero for TED talks. And we, it was by a miracle. And again, this is serendipity played such an important role. A, a person that we knew got 
the TED people to give Tristan a speaking slot with two weeks' notice, which just never happens. Mm-hmm. People spend years trying to get these slots. They spend six months preparing, and Tristan gets this done with two weeks. We go to TED, and it was he gives this great impassioned talk, and there was polite applause afterwards, and no follow-up. I mean, none. Not a person wanted to engage with us. Mm. And we're going, uh-oh, all the people we know that might be able to help us were pretty much in that room. Yeah. And nobody wanted to help. Yeah. And so we're going, okay, now we have to make it up as we're going along. And so we go to New York. We meet a few press people and people at the ACLU. And unlike the tech people, they're really interested. And then somebody, a friend of mine who's a, an author, had passed along the contact information for an aide to Senator Mark Warner, who is the co-chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which at that time was the only committee of Congress that was functional enough to possibly look into this. So you had to go outside the bubble, basically, to get anybody to pay attention to you. We escaped the bubble immediately and, frankly, have never been able to return. Yeah. I mean, it was we basically bought a one-way ticket to a different universe. When I reach out to Warner's guy, the thing about that conversation was that committee is responsible for oversight of the intelligence agencies. It's not their job to look at social media. Yeah. And, but what they realized, what this guy realized, was if they didn't look, nobody was going to look. And so he, he, he got it immediately and sets up a meeting to meet with Senator Warner. When we got there, we were really lucky because he had remained skeptical. But there was something about my biography and Tristan's that worked for him. That, you know, I had been a big investor in cellular. He'd worked in cellular. Mm-hmm. We're probably mm-hmm. the same age. So he was re- he was receptive to what. So I'm what just he saying had it turned out that Tristan and I were good messengers. Yeah. And we go through this thing, and he's like terrified. He's going, "Wait a minute, we're going to have to take on all of Silicon Valley." I'm going, "Well, not quite all." Yeah. He goes, "Really? Do we have an ally?" I go, "Sure, we've got Apple." Well, I thought that was really interesting too that you recommended Apple, and just particularly everything that's playing out right now. Tim Cook has been very vocal about regulating data shutting down all of Facebook's internal applications. Yeah, and shutting down all the apps. I mean, it, so it seems like that's really heating up. And that, again, that's that's pretty shrewd of you to suggest. Well, to be fair, I spent 34 years as an analyst in this category. And one of the simple rules, and this is one of the pieces of advice I give to people, is before you trust a company, look at the incentives of their business model. Mm-hmm. Apple isn't in the business of selling your data. They're in the business of selling you iPhones. Yeah. Right? And they have as a really huge incentive not to let you be hurt because they'd like to sell you more iPhones. And so I didn't know that Apple would be receptive to this, but I knew that they took privacy seriously. I threw that out there because it was really obvious that if there wasn't somebody on our side, Senator Warner was just going to freak out. And he goes, oh, I know Tim Cook. And so he was like, all of a sudden he brightened up and he turns to us and goes, so what do we do now? And Tristan, literally without missing a beat, goes, you got to have a hearing. You got to make Zuckerberg come in here and explain why it's okay to manipulate the attention of people and have a business model that allows bad actors to harm innocent people. And we did not know that day that they were going to do that hearing, but we gave them a set of hypotheses of how the Russian thing must have happened. And it turned out we were just dumb lucky. We had no data. It was just, we used that old philosophical notion of Occam's razor, which is that the simplest explanation is usually the most likely. And in this particular case, my analysis of what must have happened turned out to be pretty accurate. And the press validated it almost right away. Within four weeks, 
seven of the eight things had been validated, and they thought we were Nostradamus. Senator Warner did all this. So he, he brings us back, and we organized three days of meetings. And that's when I meet uh, Representative Adam Schiff. We meet a whole bunch of other members of the Senate, uh, Senator Blumenthal and, and others. And what's really clear is there are going to be three hearings. They haven't announced them yet. And they're terrified because historically there has been no reason to worry about tech from a regulatory point of view. For 50 years, tech was nothing but a positive for, for the economy, for the people who use the products, for the country as a whole. Right. And, you know, it was really an optimistic, idealistic industry. And what had happened was that the generation that produced Google and Facebook adopted a different philosophical mindset. And they viewed it, they viewed their business like it was oil, that they were extracting data from people and monetizing it. And so they were essentially exploiting 50 years of trust. Yeah, and, right. And everybody was caught off guard, including me, right? So I can't blame people in Congress for not paying attention if I wasn't. And so I look at this as we went there and they did the right thing, which is they said, you know, we need help. And so Rene Duresta, who's this amazing researcher who's been at the you know, forefront of seeing what the, how conspiracy theories spread and seeing what the Russians were doing, she and I wound up spending seven weeks, and mostly her, a little bit me, training the committees and preparing the questions and the follow-ups and all that. And that was one of the great privileges of my entire life, and I met some amazing people. And whenever somebody says to me, Congress can't regulate tech, I go, that is silly. Congress regulates industries that are much more complex. So what, and, and what's your view on that? Because I do, I think you make a, again, a persuasive argument that, that it's healthcare, the financial industry, all these things are regulated. And what, where are they right now? Of This actually, this, to me, it seems like it's a no brainer. And I, I, and I love the concept of, you know, data is a currency now and that currency should be regulated. And so, so that is exactly my point. Technology is much less complex than financial services, much less complex than healthcare. Yeah. And, it, and if you look, we have 40 new members of Congress whose average age, I think, is around 40. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is not going to be a barrier for long. And they already get it. Every company and every business has a life cycle. And where, where do you see Facebook right now in the life cycle? It's, it's a tough call. So I agree with you. Nothing grows forever. What's wrong with the current situation is that for the first time in at least two decades, companies have been allowed to behave in a manner that prevents competitors from gaining traction. You know, I argue in the book that fixing this problem does not mean abandoning tech. In fact, quite the opposite. I want tech to go back to the philosophy that it had for its first 50 years, which is this notion that Steve Jobs described as making bicycles for the mind. Mm -hmm. This idea that, that you can use technology to empower humans, that you can make them more productive, you can make them happier. What's going on right now is that Google and Facebook are taking away our humanity. If you, let me describe what's going on in artificial intelligence because it provides the perfect example. So there are four primary use cases of artificial intelligence today. Number one is elimination of white-collar work. Number two is giving tools to the remaining employees 
that replace all those people who've lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that the artificial intelligence is being trained with data sets from the real world, and nobody is taking steps to eliminate the implicit bias that exists in the real world. In the real world, if you get a mortgage, the chances are that you're going to be discriminated against because of your race or your religion, right? That's called redlining. And all of those implicit biases have gone into the mortgage applications based on AI. When you're looking for a job, there is a tremendous amount of discrimination on the basis of gender and race. And all of that is being embedded in these artificial intelligences, yeah. these black boxes that can't be audited or analyzed by anybody. The third category of AI is what is known in the industry as filter bubbles. This is what Facebook does. This is what YouTube does. They create an artificial reality where each of us has our own Truman Show. And you eliminate any ideas that aren't comfortable. And the result is you have each person has their own world, their own reality, their own facts. And that's demonstrably a problem. And that's what led to, you know, that's what influenced both the Brexit referendum in the UK and the US election 2016. And which, by the way, can be used by anybody to influence any future thing. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. I mean, this is again, it's not left right. This is a question of whether you think elections should, should be decided by the actual views of an informed electorate or by some outside party. Right. Then the fourth thing is recommendation engines telling us what to buy or enjoy. Now, let's think for a moment. You know, you're Jennifer. I'm Roger. What are the things that make you you and me me? Well, whatever list you pick, somewhere near the top, our job, the things we believe, and the things that we like to buy and enjoy. Mm -hmm. So what they're doing with AI is they're going after the things that identify us as individuals, the things that make us human. It's literally the opposite of bicycles for the mind. It's a dehumanizing focus. And it doesn't have to be that way. It would be very straightforward to make changes to the AI, to eliminate the implicit biases that exist in the real world. It would be very straightforward to not allow filter bubbles to take place on social media. And this, again, is coming circling back to regulation. Well, and also our own behavior, right? Again, right. We, by withdrawing our attention, we can force this change. Relative to Facebook, I stopped using Facebook as a source of news, and I refuse to engage in political discussion. Have you have you deactivated your, your Facebook account? Oh, no, I love Facebook. For some people, deleting the apps is the right answer, yeah, right? Yeah, right. But for most people, you know, you have things you have to do where there's no alternative. I mean, if you are an activist trying to bring people together, sure. it, these it, products it are really good. Yeah. Or if you're Roger McNamee and you have a book called Zucked and you want to <laughs> sell it, yeah. you need to promote it on Facebook and Instagram. Why? Because that's where the people are yeah. who are most affected and would let most like to know what I think, right? And so my point is that we live with these things. And, you know, I, I just want to find a detente where we can coexist. And the place we're at now is not it. How does that change your investment thesis? And, and when you, and I mean, you invested in Facebook, for example. Like, how do you think about that? It's still my largest individual position, but, but for a totally different reason. I 
didn't want anybody to accuse me of becoming an activist because somehow I felt like, you know, I'd sold the stock too early or something, right? Yeah. So, I'm, you know, yesterday was a good day, but I've been taking a pounding, right, right along with everybody else. And that's correct. I kind of feel like, you know, as, as long as I'm part of the story, as long as I'm the one putting the stuff out, I should be taking the same risks as the people working in Facebook. Yeah. And, you know, that for me is a personal choice, right? It's obviously not necessary, but I chose that. When you ask me about investment thesis, it's very difficult because I want to believe that we're going to fix this problem. Because if we don't, you're going to be in that situation, as we are with climate change, where having a stock that goes up is going to leave you in a much worse place. And if we don't address this, Google and Facebook are going to be great stocks. Well, here's the other thing. This is my my last question before I let you go, because I I keep coming back to this, and you, you hit upon this in the book as well. Mark Zuckerberg has an immense amount of power simply because the way the corporate hierarchy is structured. He controls the company. He controls the board. He is chairman and CEO. And a lot of tech companies have followed suit and are doing this, like Snap is one. And um, so just on that very premise, the thing that surprises me is that more investors don't insist that there shouldn't be two classes of stock. There shouldn't be so much concentrated power, you know, within a company. So I think the reason they don't is that we have for 40 years, almost 40 years, lived in an environment where we've convinced ourselves that the only thing that matters in business or investing is the return to shareholders. I think the problem with Facebook and Google, you know, and the, the, the share voting is a part of this, but they built giant success stories and accumulated huge economic power on the level of standard oil in the early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's, there are legitimate cases to be made on both sides of that, you know, how legitimate that is, right? And I, I totally respect the people who say building that economic power is totally okay. You know, whether I agree or disagree is irrelevant. It's just that there is a legitimate argument. The problem is that the nature of Facebook and Google is they've also accumulated unprecedented political power. I am not one of these people who believes that changing the management of Facebook and Google is going to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. So what I does fix it? I mean, so, well, so you basically, have to change the business model. Yeah. And, and, you know, candidly, I think it will be a lot easier to change the business model if the founders remain engaged because they have the moral authority to do it. Nothing seems to have brought Congress together more than more than uh, the social media tech giants and and trying to and trying to regulate them. And this is why I feel so positive and optimistic about the future. I really believe we can fix this. Roger, it, it was a great book. I everybody should go out and buy Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Thank you so much for coming on the program. This was really it was, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Be sure to check out BreakingViews.com and subscribe to our various audio products, including The Views Room, on iTunes or anywhere else you go to get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.